from the home of Hashtag MTAS, the movie talk on Sundays, comes Film File, the podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Filmfile UK. And a very good day to you all for the Filmfile episode three. In this episode, we are talking all things it. We're also talking all things mucusy because we're both we're both kind of suffering at the moment from the onset of a cold. Yeah, so don't worry, we're not being possessed by demons. Don't call a priest. Uh, we're all fine. We'll make it through to the end of this episode. I'm Lee Ford and you are Andy Meekin. And welcome to Filmfile. So, shall we start off with the news roundup? Yes, please. Uh, you've been towering all the way through the internet to find out all the latest gossip news, showbiz uh, information, just to offer you good people. Yes, we know by the time you get this that it might be a little bit out of date, but you may have missed it. So we are actually performing a public service. Yeah, because, uh, you know, you can't keep on top of everything. And there's a few things in this that came out last week that I didn't twig on myself. So uh, feel free to listen to us go through it. Top news for me this week, Margot Robbie, uh, yes. her production company, p- um, picking up the rights for Tank Girl. Tank Girl. Now, um, those who remember it actually came out as a film way, way back in the... 95. Uh, in, 95, was 95. it? I thought it was close to the 80s. Tank Girl was a British property, for those who don't know, I mean, are not the comic geeks that we are. Jamie Hewitt developed it, if I remember. Uh, yeah, at Hewlett, Hewlett and Martin. And it was, uh, I think it was one of those comics that, that didn't really make it over to the States. But what it did do is it, it was all part of that big music resurgence that came out at that particular point, the, the cool Britannia feel. I think a lot of people actually wore the T-shirt more than read the comic. She was a very, very identifi- identifiable character. Um, it was very, very punk. It was, it was very, very rock and roll. Uh, it was, was very it, grungy. Was it Deadline that it started in? Deadline, yes, strips. Yeah. Yeah, it's made a resurgence over the past couple of years in comeback format. The original creators haven't been behind it. New writers have been writing. Right, I didn't know So that. it has started to build up a bit more of a following in the US. But, you know, the problems that the last the original film had, like which starred Laurie Petty, it's a very cult film and it does have its fans and I'm one of them. Yeah, it's not a bad film. Malcolm McDowell was the villain. But I know Jamie Hewlett um, isn't a big fan of it because it kind of... I, the production of it had a lot of problems the studio started to panic about like how British it was and not didn't get mass appeal. And so they edited things, they tweaked things, they told them to drop elements, add new elements in. Yeah, Ice-T was in as a yeah. um, talking kangaroo. It, 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 was a, it was a very cool looking film. Yes, I can see why it didn't do well. And I think it, it, it tried to walk that middle line between, and I, and I blame this, I, if there is any blame to have on the studio, it wasn't anarchic enough. And the elements that were anarchic, there should have been more on. There was some, uh, some, some really cool animation sequences in it which apparently from a report that i read a few years ago most of those animation sequences were added in to cover up the patches in the story after they cut elements out so it was basically to try to fuse it together i think that that kind of that the whole mess of the film the like absolute state that it is kind of works well with the feel of the comic in that it was very scattershot it was very bizarre and like sometimes the things didn't make sense but it didn't quite grasp the comic it's all it's always been a property that has so much potential for delivering spectacle on screen fun yeah and like you say anarchy and now we've got a uh, miles joris and this is where i get the surnames wrong <laughs> it's usually me <laughs> pay, pay Rafite. yes i think that's right he's going to be directing it he's uh, partnered with robbie in the upcoming dreamland so they've worked together before so that's why she's um coerced him into Making this one interesting. Is she in it? Do we know if she's going to? She's sign casting up? herself. Oh, um, perfect! I think she, she, she sees herself for the tank girl role, and I, I think, yeah. I mean, you look at like your Harley Quinn, yeah. and that's a tank girl esque kind of character. And the, the fact that, and I think this is the thing with with non American actors. Uh, she's Australian, so I think that that sometimes they they will take a chance and do something anarchic because they've they've got more to play with to some extent. They're not as image conscious. I think we're also living in a, an era where there's a few more risks being taken for relatively lower budget films. I mean, look at Deadpool. Yeah. Deadpool came in at 85 million, I believe. If it had gone over 100 million to make, that's when the studio would have interfered. But because it was sub 100, Fox just went, do what you want. Yeah. Go for it. 
and it worked. And I think that you can get a good production out of a lower budget these days. And something like Tank Girl doesn't need a huge production. No. It, it needs to have that freedom to play with itself. And it needs that style. Which I think play with itself in the terms of Tank Girl is very, very apt. Yeah. I'm looking <laughs> forward to it. I, I think Tank Girl's a great character and I think she's not she's not embedded enough into the into the modern psyche. So you, you can take some amount of liberties and reintroduce the character fresh. Uh, but yeah, keep that anarchic, anarchic style to it. Interesting that Laurie Petty was was uh, the lead in that, and and that film should have made her that and Point Break. She was supposed to be in Demolition Man, yeah, and she got dropped for Sandra Bullock, and we saw where Sandra Bullock's uh, career went. Uh, Laurie Petty, last thing I saw her into, she's a fine actress, and I saw her in uh, Orange Is the New Black, yeah, and she was in that. So yeah, interested, looking forward to that. And I and I guess while we're talking about uh, uh, Margot Robbie, finally got to see Once Upon a Time. In Hollywood. Oh, uh, yeah, because uh, when we recorded the last one, you hadn't got round yeah, to it. My hands were up. I'm not going to go into it because we, we're not here to review that. We talked about it the other week. Just to say, it is the best and worst of Tarantino for me. The best being that the style, the visual style and the recreation of, of that period of Hollywood, which is a, a really interesting period of Hollywood. It was the big change. It was the beginning of uh, and the end of the studio system and the beginning of, of more maverick filmmakers easy rider was just around the corner um rosemary's baby uh happened for polanski it was a really really cool part it was the end of end of the the, the hippie days which many people said the manson family were responsible for bringing that to an end the, the love and peace era so i loved it i loved the uh, uh the look the style it felt as though it was of, of the time um visually fantastic i, I liked brad pitt i thought he was uh, laconic at, at best i Think that that all the all the performances were fantastic. Can't not the performances. The worst of Tarantino is that somebody needs to give him an editor and a producer <laughs> who will say no to him. And I know he's an individual voice, and we talked about that, and, and people have agreed and disagreed. He's a unique voice and unique filmmaker, and we applaud that. However, there were scenes that meandered. There were scenes that were unnecessary to to the story. Um, I didn't mind the ending. I thought that it was a it was a fairy tale. It did say once upon a time in Hollywood. No spoilers, but I I do think it is the best and worst of him. Uh, there was nothing that really hung out as being that classic Tarantino dialogue that one expects. It did uh, verge on uh, misogynistic, but I could let that go because it was set in a period that was misogynistic. Interesting film. The best thing I've seen him do since Kill Bill Volume One for me. But it's not a classic like Jackie Brown or Pulp Fiction. Those who tuned into the bonus episode will know that um, Tarantino is a very divisive filmmaker. Whilst people like generally say that he's not made a particularly bad film, everyone's favourites are different. Mine, Jackie Brown's low down for me. I, I agree that like it is his strongest film in quite some time. Yeah. And yeah, there is the overindulgence. But with regards to the overindulgence... With Hateful Eight recently re-edited for Netflix into a four-part series with an extra 30 minutes, there's been rumours that Tarantino's going to be tackling Once Upon a Time in Hollywood the same. I had heard this. And Brad Pitt has gone on record to confirm Tarantino has been talking about that. Because apparently there's loads of cut sections, including a whole performance by Tim Roth. Yes, who gets uh, credited at the end yeah. as being not being in the film, <laughs> uh, as being cut. So yeah, I, I think that's an interesting way to go with it. I'd heard this rumour some, some time back and I wasn't allowed to mention it because I wanted to mention it on the on the last film file. Interesting. I'd still like to see the full version of Kill Bill, for instance. I'd like to see that as in its entirety. But yeah, I could see it as a as a mini as a mini series. It is episodic. The scenes that meander uh, uh, with restructuring could be quite interesting and, um, and offer more insight to it. But if you haven't seen it, it's well worth seeing. It's one of uh, Tarantino's best films in a long time. There are faults with it. I can't say it's a perfect film. But what is? Yeah. There's, what there's, is, Andy, there's no at the end of the day? What is a perfect It's film? a wonderful life and that's about it. That's no it. argument here at all. <laughs> so tying into the first news with Margot Robbie, let's uh, quickly discuss Suicide Squad sequel. The film is set to start shooting this month. We're finally getting around to the shooting. However, don't get too excited. It's still two years before it comes out. There's names such as Idris Elba, Nathan Fillion, Taika Waititi and Peter Capaldi being added to the cast. Yes, I noticed Peter Capaldi had been... Uh, nope. And just, just to give another Doctor Who uh, reference point, the director of Tank Girl went on to direct... Uh, lots of episodes of Doctor Who. She, she did indeed. She did indeed. She did indeed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's also returning roles for Margot Robbie, Jai Courtney, Viola Davis and Joel Kinnaman, who we're no doubt going to be returning. Everyone else thrown aside. They want to keep it like a different group each time that they do a Suicide Squad film. Some people are saying this is a reboot. It's not. It's Suicide Squad. It's different characters in every 
Alex. Yeah, the, the those who remember the comic were it's it was the dirty dozen of, of, of comic book villains of, of DC comic book villains. So they can entirely do that. I, I'm happy not to see Joker back in that. Um, the Joker brought nothing to it and should have brought everything to it. It's just that when we talked about this in in our previous episodes, it's just the state of of the ever crumbling DC universe, the cinematic universe. I think it's quietly quietly just been swept under the carpet. Yeah, we did have connections, but now we've not got Henry Cavill and, and, and Ben Affleck. We'll just slightly sweep it away and forget that it ever happened and just focus on the films, which I'm fine by. You can't always build an empire. They've been very um, cautious with Suicide Squad news as well, that whilst they've done all the casting, they've not actually done much confirmation of which characters are cropping up. All that we know with um, Capaldi's one is he's going to be bald. Right. Which has started some people speculating, is he going to be a new take on Mr. Freeze? I can see Mr. that. Freeze. And a few people are going for the psychic Simon. Okay. Though, oh, yes, I did. I was going to say, I don't remember that psychic Simon. I thought it was a game that came out in the 80s. Yeah, <laughs> Sounds I remember like psychic a ZX Simon. Spectrum game. Yeah, 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 it did. Yeah. <laughs> psychic Simon, coming to your house this Christmas. But um, with James Gunn writing and directing, it's, it's in pretty safe hands for someone who knows how to get a whole group of characters together who you've not seen before on film and make you care about each of them in some way by the end of the film. There won't be any... I, don't, I can't see there being any like in um, the first Suicide Squad film of characters who are just on screen, kind of in the background, and then just get killed off quick. Yeah. He knows how to give everyone their time to shine. So August 2021 is when uh, we should get really excited and look forward to that, but no doubt there'll be all kinds of news coming out at once filming starts with more on-set reports, speculation, and hopefully um, letting us know what characters are going to be in it. And then hopefully I'll jump into... Uh... Guardians 3. Yeah, well, he's, the plan is as soon as he's finished all the post-production on this, he goes straight on to Guardians 3, which is due for 2022 release, wow. I believe. So it's literally going to be a, like, once it goes into the post-production, he's starting the primary production. Let's hope he gets a holiday in. I'm concerned for James I don't think he needs one. <laughs> Have we seen, or are we due yet, a Birds of Prey? Because Margot Robbie's coming back to play Harley Quinn in Birds of Prey. Uh, stills have started to turn out. Are we any closer to a trailer? Apparently there was a trailer released, cinema only. Right. In the US. Okay. So the, the the it's out there somewhere. No doubt it's already made its way somewhere not leaked online. But I've not caught anything myself yet. I'm not sure how I feel about the Birds of Prey film. Uh, Birds of Prey, again, if you're not a comic geek and you're just here for the films, it's, you probably realise that Andy and I are. But for those, it was an offshoot of... It didn't have actually have Harley Quinn as a... As a no. ...player in that. It was originally Batgirl Oracle, Black Canary... Huntress, and am I missing someone? There was a TV series. I remember a TV series that didn't last very long, which wasn't as bad as people seem to remember it, but it wasn't great. Uh, and so it was a basically it was a female packed super team, which has just been had a bit of a renaissance in the comics. Not read any, so I, I can't tell you if it's any good. I do I do follow the writer on Twitter, but I I've not read any, so I don't know if it's if it's any cop. It just kind of worries me with it that. The focus seems to be on Harley Quinn. And for me, Birds of Prey should never be a focus on a character who wasn't part of Birds of Prey. It feels like they just wanted to do a Harley Quinn spin-off. They were already having this Birds of Prey film in production and kind of went, eh, let's cobble them together. Yeah, And that's what worries me. I hate the idea of it just being cobbled together. Maybe it'll surprise me. I mean, Aquaman surprised me no end. You know, still I, not seen it. I loved it from start to finish. Me it was too. comic book nonsense. And Shazam was the biggest surprise for the DC for me because the trailers did nothing for me. And I went in expecting it to be awful. And it's the most heartfelt film that they've done in the DC stable since Donna's Superman. Absolutely brilliant. Oh, I Um, I don't have that reaction to it, but I'm going to let you roll with that one. because clearly I I fell in love with that film. But linked into DC and we've been talking about Suicide Squad and how Joker was underused. How excited are you for Joker? Do you know, since I started to see the reviews, and uh, and if you've had chance or, or, or read any of the reviews for it, I don't think they'd give a lot away, but they're all startlingly good. Film of the year being plastered all over it. Uh, um, transcends the medium of comic book films. For a film that I had very little interest of, and I think a lot of people probably felt exactly the same, I'm, I'm very intrigued. I love the look of it. I think it's got that 70s Scorsese-esque appeal of it, which I, for those who know me know that's my favourite time in cinema, the 70s. So I love all that. I don't know what to make of it. I think it's a film on its own right. I like the fact that it doesn't tie into the DC universe and and, and it shouldn't. The character of the Joker, and Alan Moore touched upon this, is there's no one origin for the Joker. Yeah. He is a blank slate. All the films have have hinted at his, his origin. 
but there has never been a definitive Joker origin. Yes, I know he falls into the acid acid pool, but who he was before then, uh, the, the Jack Nicholson version was a very entirely different uh, Jack Napier character. I think he played. Yeah, was a, was a, was a, a character created for the screen. There's uh, the Heath Ledger version, which is again a very very different take on it. And again, he, 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 there's a mythology to his origin. So I think it's a it's a very very bold move. I hope it finds an audience, and I think good word of mouth will at least give it a shot. But it's good to see that that it's receiving those plaudits. Well, we'll get back get back to the word of mouth in a second. But just to like confirm, Todd Phillips has made it clear and gone on record to say that this film will in no way relate to any upcoming Batman reboot. Um, the Rob Patterson or Batterson, as we're referring to him, one being directed by Matt Reeves. Todd Phillips has said that he fully expects another reinvention of the characters to be done at some time. To put it into his words, he said, oddly in the States, comic books are our Shakespeare, and you can do many, many versions of Hamlet. There will be many, many more Jokers, I'm sure, in the future. So he's basically saying that this is its own film. This is its own entity. It has no relation to DC, and I think that's probably a good thing. Now, getting back to the good word... Whilst it screened in Venice and came out with like plaudits and like very good reviews, it's now been at um, it's the Toronto International Film Festival. Right. And now some of the cracks are starting to come out, some of the negative okay. reviews, which seem to be focusing on the glorification of violence in it and concerns that it will cause copycats. It's focusing too much on what it could do to our culture by the way that it does it. Now, whilst the, this whole debate's going on and there's a lot of slanging matches going on online about this with like people saying, no, well, you're missing the point and other people saying, well, no, you're missing the point, etc., etc. I can't help but thinking that even this negative word coming out is just going to get people who maybe weren't interested a bit more intrigued as to what is so powerful mm. in this film that it's worrying people so much. I, I, I mean, they were initially predicting like a huge opening weekend for it. I can picture it being even bigger than what it was expected, purely from this whole hubbub going on at the moment with like, oh no, well, if you watch this, you're going to become a serial killer. Or, oh no, it's, it's making the Joker out to be a good guy. Or, what, what it does, we don't know because we've not seen the yes. film. I've not even seen the second trailer because the first trailer sold it to me. I just can't wait to see what this film is. And we've only we've got a month before it comes out now. I know. Uh, I, just to offer a slightly diverse point of point of view on that. Also, I do think that festivals and, and especially things like Venice, for instance, the, the critique that goes to that and talks about films are not necessarily you guys on the street. And so films that have done very well in, in, in the festival circuit don't always necessarily, Cannes being a perfect example, always that, that filters down onto a street level. But word of mouth is good. Joker is a recognisable. There's not many other comic book villains out there. Probably Thanos now is probably as, as recognisable as the Joker. But the Joker is the most recognisable villain. He's, he's been on the cover more than probably a, a, any other villain. I don't think Marvel really has a, a villain of, of, of that stake. So moving on from Joker, which we're now all super intrigued about. Oh, definitely. What else have you got? Well, there was a small film by John Woo, which came out, oh, oh. 90s, uh, it had uh, that Nicholas Blokey and uh, that John Revolting or someone, <laughs> uh, Face Off. Yeah, well, Face Off was sort of the signature John Woo film, probably the biggest out of all of his American films. It was his biggest success after coming over to America because he'd done Broken Arrow. It had Broken well Arrow well. and he did the one with Jean-Claude Van Damme, which was basically a remake of uh, 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 Most Dangerous Game. Yeah. And he never achieved the things that he wanted to do in, in the States. Uh, was too too bridled by the studio system, went back to the States. Uh, you know, the big John Woo film for most people is still hard-boiled. It's, it holds up today as being a great action movie. Face Off was a film that I kind of liked. I'd read a very early script where it was set in the future and that made sense to me <laughs> because that sort of technology would have made more sense even though it was just it wasn't the distant future it was it was the near future there was always that issue that that technology could not and should not exist and even though it, and it was never set up to exist but it was an okay Nicholas Cage outperformed at, at, at number 12 now he's at number 16 but then he was about number 12 going on 13 Travolta had a, a leading man career at the time but the setup was good cop bad guy swap faces and they is uh, there's a 
a crime that needs solving. It's a, it's a bomb, if I remember correctly. Yeah. To go off. It, was a, it was an interesting film to what I mean, recent rewatchers show exactly how cheesy it is, but it is John Woo by numbers. All his signature moments are in there, the back-to-back wall-to-wall moments, mm. like with handguns, the twin handgun action leaping through the scene, mirrored shots, doves flying, crucifixes. You know, every staple of a John Woo action film is shoehorned in there, but it's in a fun way. It's yeah. glorious riotous fun totally ridiculous. and watching the two leads playing each other basically and they're both clearly enjoying every minute of it they there's more ham in this than in Sainsbury's Deli there really <laughs> is it's, it's it's over the top I, I remember liking it I remember not loving it I've not I don't think I've, I've revisited it in an awful long time by the sounds that you have but there's a book coming now isn't there there's a Big butt coming, it's getting a reboot, stroke, remake, stroke, whatever. Is that absolutely necessary? It's a film of its time, the, the same way that Point Break was. Those films are very much a time capsule for that period of filmmaking. And the reason that Point Break didn't work as they tried to update it is that there's not a relevance to them anymore. They've been done and they've been done better. If you're going to play with, with Face Off, take it back to the, to the near future and do be more sci-fi with it as opposed to try and be just a, a movie. That I'd be interested in. Otherwise, I don't know, unless you go, go somewhere really, really different with it. I mean, the only thing that intrigues me is um, Oren Uziel, the writer of 22 Jump Street and Cloverfield Paradox, okay. is um, penning the script. Okay. So, you know, I, I, I can see some like elements of humour that he's obviously got, but Cloverfield Paradox, which went straight to Netflix, I had quite a lot of love for. I think there was a good few ideas within there. So I'm intrigued to see what could come from this. However, I think with something like Face Off, what made the last film particularly was the casting. Yeah. They so, have to get the casting right, and there's no word on the casting yet. I personally think they should do it as a remake. Okay, uh, not straight. a remake, make it as a sequel. Oh, okay. Spoiler alert if you've not seen Face Off, but one character dies by the end of it, but they then, like, recloned him and then take his face off again and swap them around again and have Nick Cage and John Travolta having fun with it and call it Face to Face. (laughs) (laughs) Off. (laughs) <laughs> interesting just on a, on, a, on a sidebar to that before we uh, we look each other in the eye and work out if we are who we say we are the, the careers of Nicolas Cage and John Travolta and where they've ascended and descended to within the, within that sort of 20 odd year period it's interesting because I've been watching episodes of Community recently and uh, just today before recording this I watched the episode where they did the Freaky Friday thing and it's now made me realise that Face Off is like an action version of Freaky Friday absolutely and that's all that it is they should call it Freaky Face Off Freaky Face Off Freaky- just on a very, very similar note to Face Off, I'm very intrigued by Gemini Man, which is uh, the Will Smith yeah, Lee movie. Yeah, with, uh, with a completely CGI Will Smith. Look, it's so basically, it's a, it's a great premise, and it's been around, the script was knocking around for years. Originally, from what I believe, developed for Clint Eastwood uh, to play an older assassin being hunted by a younger assassin version of himself, a clone, a younger clone of himself, hunts down the original. Of course, now with all the sort of Marvel films and watched Endgame over the weekend, still tear up when Falcon says, on your left. Oh, man, it gets me every time. (laughs) Tearing up now. Uh, But, you know, the the de-aging effect now is just absolutely perfect. And and those films have proved that it works. And uh, I've not seen the trailer yet. I've seen a couple of stills. It looks very, very intriguing. Anyway, sidebar on, on Gemini, man. I've got to round up with um, two things that I want to try to see if each week I can come up with a and I never saw that coming kind of news and a quirky news. So the I never saw it coming this week is the sequel to the recent Tomb Raider film starring Alicia Vikander um, is in the works with Ben Wheatley. I know. I read this and I had to double check that I'd not, uh, I'd, instead of Weetabix, had some psychedelic drugs instead <laughs> because I was very, very uh, shocked. I mean, Kill I... List, Sightseers. I mean, Free Fire is probably the closest one that you can see in tone to like the style that a Tomb Raider film. But even that is a bit too left field for a video game movie. I thought she was great, oh, Lara yeah. Croft. I thought it was a, a, a film that was nearly, nearly there, but almost backed out of it by getting rid of the supernatural quality that was think, in the script. I've got the original, read the original script. It was in there and they backed out of it and tried to make it much more. Well, reboot games that it's designed on, like kind of skirt around the supernatural on the first one as well. And I feel that they just wanted to tap into that video game audience, make them go, well, Here's the new Lara Croft. You should like... And there's moments in the film that are literally ripped straight from the yes. game. And it was just a generic action film. Yeah. I'm intrigued to see where it can go. And But what a weird choice. This could 
work to the favour. If they give Wheatley his chance to craft his own vision, this could be something truly spectacular video game movie-wise. Well, when they sign a director like that, it's either a gun for hire, and he's going to be told, but it's, it's his big break into the studio system. That's not always worked out for the best. We've just talked about John Woo. I'll put my hand up now. I'm not a Ben Wheatley fan. I think he's very Emperor's New Clothes. I've not seen anything yet that, that I hate his sightseers. I just don't get him as a filmmaker. <laughs> and and I, I've talked about this with you. We like individual voices and I admire him for that. But he's a little bit Emperor's New Clothes for me. I'm not a huge fan. I would be intrigued, though, to see if the best of what he can do and, and the stylization that he, he brings to his films, he can bring that to Tomb Raider and we get a better Tomb Raider. At least now I feel as though we're in safe hands with with the team and the style of Tomb Raider than we were way back when. I've, I've got slight reservations um, this film did very well in Europe and, and very well in China, I think it did. It didn't do so great in the States, but those reservations are that they try and tone it down and, and again, it becomes generic. And this time they've got an opportunity to be out on a limb and be very, very bold about it. Uh, and they've got the right elements in place to build upon. And for the quirky news... I'm ready. Right. Uh, it's not particularly film-related, although there have been films. I'm going to just say that some books have been banned at a school in Nashville. And the Reverend Dan Rehill, the pastor who's banned them, has stated, and I quote, These books present magic as both good and evil, which is not true, but in fact a clever deception. The curses and spells used in the books are actual curses and spells, which when read by a human being, risk conjuring evil spirits into presence of a person reading the text. You would think he was talking about the Necronomicon or something. <laughs> nope, he's talking about... Harry Potter. Now, <laughs> this is where I, I go into total uh, a total meltdown, and I hate the idea of censorship. I it, it's this one thing uh, that somebody telling me what I can and can't read, and not being able to create my own judgment, sends me into in. It, it, I hulk out. I'm trying my hardest on my eyes not to go white and go, and my body goes green on it. It's okay. I'll just I'll, I'll just open up a Harry Potter book, find a spell. Yeah, find a spell. There are millions of millions, millions of people who've read uh, Harry Potter books across the world who have not, and we and we don't need evidence because it's just balderdash. My next door neighbor's house should be um, engulfed in in hellfire for the amount. She's just a huge Harry Potter fan. I mean, it's, it's utter tish. I mean. It's control. If you're wanting to ban the Harry Potter film books from schools, then, you know, at least have it for a reason such as you want kids to read stuff which is actually good and which they, they won't start thinking that mediocre materials are classics. But, like you say, they should ne- banning censorship, awful. I, I mean, understand for the extreme reasons, but for nonsense like this, just because someone's took offence at, like, the fact that it's got wizards and witches in there and clearly not actually... I mean, he must have read it. So surely, he, surely, in order quite, to have these opinions, perhaps he actually used some of the uh, the spells in it, and they worked for him. Yeah, uh, and uh, it must be a YouTube video somewhere. But, but no, it's just abysmal, and 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 doing it in the name of religion, which is which is clearly what it breaks down to. Um, you know, when we're talking about books, which is all about good and evil, don't get me started. I'll I'll end it there. But these people are there's no other word. Hashtag idiot. You, you are, sir, you, please feel free to get in touch with us at the film file. Like anybody, please get in, feel free to get in touch with us. But, sir, you're an idiot. And, and it's that kind of small-mindedness and just, uh, just your worldview is, is... I'm going to stop there because I, we could rant. I could rant <laughs> so now I, for the rest. Give well, me some good news, please, Andy. Well, I wonder what the Reverend Dan Rehill would say about our main film that we're talking about this week. Indeed. By the master of horror himself, Mr. Stephen King. 27 years, I dreamt of you. I missed you. We didn't stop it. It, Chapter 2. So, um, the main film this week to look at is the release of It Chapter 2. Right. So, just so you know, we're going to paint a picture. Andy got to see this yesterday. I couldn't make it to watch it with Andy. Uh, I've just seen it. I've literally just come out of the screening and before we recorded this. 
So we've not even had, had an opportunity to chat amongst ourselves. We like to do before we start start recording. So I don't know what Andy feels about this. Andy doesn't have a clue what I, I think about this. I've had time to have it have the film settle on me to do a weighed opinion. Yours is going to be like a wolf. Yeah, mine, mine's, the, mine's the pure adrenaline of just having, having walked out of it. So uh, just a... Brief synopsis for those who are completely out of the loop on this one. It Chapter 2 starts with a scene taken straight out of the book, which has caused some controversy. The film moves 27 years later from the first film, and It is back. Mike Hanlon is the only one of the Losers Club who's still in Derry, whilst the others left the town and became huge successes, yet all mysteriously forgot everything that had happened to them in what is known as the Derry Effect. As Hanlon calls them all back to fulfil their bonding promise they all made, the gang find themselves facing old demons from their childhood whilst trying to work out how to defeat the evil clown Pennywise. So, instant opinion. I preferred the first film. I preferred chapter one. Chapter one had that Spielbergian feel to it, that ambling, Goonies. uh, You can see where Stranger Things found its influence from. I liked it a lot. I don't think chapter one is a horror film. I think it's a... Uh, an adventure film with horror elements. It's a coming it. of age. Of it's age a coming adventure. of age movie, and and which is which Stephen King does incredibly well. The body, which Stand by Me is based on, just captures that perfectly. I've re readdressed the book recently, and I mentioned it in a previous podcast. So everything's very very fresh in in my mind about the, about the book. I think the casting is great. The Bill Hader. Bill Hader steals every he, scene that he's in. He delivers his career best because he, he, you've, you've seen him in so many comedies. You've seen him like. With seen, do you watch Barry by any chance? I don't know. Barry is fantastic. But, he plays a, a hitman who wants to become an actor. It, it's it's not meta as you think it would be, but it, there's there's how to do something different with the hitman genre. I've seen him in um, it chapter two. He conveys every emotion on the whole range of emotions throughout the film. He's truly believable as a character. Absolutely loved him. He becomes the heart of the film. Definitely. He's, uh, he's. The, I mean, in a way, I, th- I feel that that kind of took away from part of the book because Bill was always the key character. Yeah. Bill was always the heart. But I feel that, I mean, you, when you say that James McAvoy is being overshadowed by another actor, yeah. you know that that other actor has deserved that slot. Uh, yeah, James McAvoy plays Bill, who was the, the, the stuttering child in the first film. Uh, Jessica Chastain, uh, Bill Hader, Bill Skarsgård uh, repeats his role and makes it his own from yeah, Tim Curry as, as uh, I, Pennywise. I, I genuinely feel he's he's got more of a like proper Pennywise feel than Curry had. I mean, Curry was the only good thing on that miniseries. Anyone who's got anyone who remembers being scared by that miniseries when they first watched it, go back and revisit it. You'll find that it's not actually that great, but Tim Curry was. Yes. Um, he's the standout. He's what you remember about it because his performance was he, everything he did in Legend, which is still I think is a phenomenal performance. <laughs> um he, he brought to he brought to it and he makes it more memorable than what it is. It, this is the best and, and worst of, of a Stephen King story. Stephen King story do do meander. There's a lot of a, a lot of development of character in it. Probably more so than sometimes we need. There's a lot of uh, sidebars in in his books and it does suffer from being maybe 100 and 200 pages too long. And that's the that's the same essence problem that I've had with with chapter 2. What I did like about it, it did feel more of a horror film. Yeah. So rounding out the cast, uh, Isaiah Mustafa as as Mike, who, who's the character who stays in Derry and brings them all back after a series of murders. And I'd like to talk about the, the murder at the beginning at some point. Uh, James Ranson, who plays uh, Eddie, who was the kid who was, uh, who was stuck to his ventilator all the way through. Uh, Over, overbearing mother. Overbearing mother. So it's a great, great cast. Uh, and of course, uh, Skarsgård, putting his own take on the character. And stealing everything. Yeah, he's, he's great. Though I don't think it has as much to do. It doesn't feel as though there's as much he, to do in He kind of lurks for a lot of the film, just in the background. Yeah. Just as they are getting twisted by their own memories, he's just having fun watching them getting twisted. And that's what this film's about. This is a film about going back and revisiting your past and, 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 and possibly trying to make changes to your past about things forgotten there's a there's a nice running gag that uh the James McAvoy character Bill is a screenwriter and a, a book writer who can't finish a, a book with a good ending which Stephen King's been accused of many many times Stephen King makes a fantastic cameo in it I'm not going to tell you where oh yes but he, do, he does make a marvelous cameo and, and and that sort of reference because the book has a very odd ending which which has not necessarily worked uh, to a modern audience and, and was always the problem was the problem with the miniseries uh, not so problematic here. I think I they think tackled it. The, I think that they ramped it up quite nicely at yeah. the ending. And for me, th- there's bits that are missed from the book. I mean, particularly the subplots involving Audra, Bill's wife, 
and also Tom Bev's husband. Yes. You know, they're absolutely a lot through like for all the daddy scenes. Yeah. And I wonder if that's because apparently there's a fair bit cut. I'm wondering if some of that still exists on the cutting room floor or whether it's never shot. Yeah. But, you know, I, I was aware that those moments were missing because I know the book inside yeah. out. And but, at two hours, 45 minutes, there's, I think there's a lot of space wasted in it where we meet the young cast again, which I didn't feel was necessary. I wanted to get on with the adventure. And even though the young cast were absolutely phenomenal and, and made that first film, uh, you believed in them, you believed uh, 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 their adventure, you believed their jeopardy. I don't think I wanted to see them again, and they have been brought back. I don't know if that was always the plan or the film did that well that, that they felt the need to bring them back. I, I think that the manner in which that they've done the flashbacks in this one, I mean, the first film worked so well because it focused them on as a kid. And we've mentioned this before, that you know it was a great way to just do a coming-of-age tale with horror elements that could stand on its own as its own film. But this second film adopts the style of the book a bit more. Yes. Where as the characters, the adult characters are remembering things, we witness those events. Yeah, we go back And all that it made me good. think is like, well, why didn't you make the whole two parts like this so we yeah. didn't have to be reintroduced to the characters each time and it would have flowed a bit better. And maybe it's one of those hindsight things that they realised that they could make one film and if it wasn't, the first part wasn't a success. It's okay, that's just one film. It's on its own. It stood stood on its own. It didn't need a sequel. But now that we've got the whole story, I do wonder if going back and re-editing it to make it that the adults are remembering things as we're learning things would work in its benefit. Actually, there's rumours that the director, um, Andy Muschietti, is talking about a supercut of It Parts 1 and 2. Well, there was talk, uh, and I was following this because I, I, I didn't purchase or I didn't get it part one, that there was going to be a, an extended director's cut. So again, as we talked about with Tarantino, the, the idea of a, even a, a Netflix miniseries based on this, it did get a bit miniseries-y feel with it. The, the horror elements worked really well. There were some, some truly gross-out effects, gross-out sequences, the Chinese restaurant sequence, for instance. Pity that it ended with a gag because it didn't need to, and it sort of underscored it. And it happened a few times. There's one moment that completely took out took me out of the film, and, and for an unnecessary reason, Angel of the Morning sound yeah, appeared on the soundtrack. I thought you were going to mention that one. I have no idea why that was in. I, I don't know if I missed something or misremembered something from the first film. It completely took me out of the film. That then I had to spend time getting back into the film, and there's a John Carpenter's The Thing reference. See, I quite enjoyed the little thing reference and that threw me out of it and they were the shining the, reference not so much but no. the john carpenter the thing reference i i find myself chuckling but seeing the context of it because the character who makes the reference you could kind of see why he's the character who would respond to yeah that. but the angel in the morning sequence and, and where it's placed and i don't know what i've missed for them to have, to have used that i don't know if it was in the 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 older movie uh in the flashback sequences i don't know but it completely took me out of the film and i had to spend time getting back in, into it overall i enjoyed it i'd like to see i'd like to see a supercut i think it would be uh it, it would add elements to it that that will take it like back close to the novel it works as uh, and again an horrific adventure film as opposed to a horror film but then again it, the book's not really a horror horror book no it's such. still like a journey kind of book yeah. with horror elements and it's true to the book it, it's absolutely true to the spirit of the book even though there's the sequences which are lost in characters which where I would have liked to have seen in it's not one of those let's remember lawnmower man <laughs> that bears no resemblance to what 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 King was uh, was was involved in, and it captures the essence. And all good film adaptations should capture the essence of what the book's about. And I think it does that, and and, and I applaud it for that. The second part is not as perfect as the first part. I think the, f- the first on is, is is nearly a perfect version of it that you can do. Unfortunately, the second one isn't quite there in the way that the first one is. But I did enjoy it. I must admit, I had a, I had a roller coaster of a ride with it. There was some jump out of my seat moments and some some genuine surprises and they tackled the ending which is very muddled in the book in a way that the 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 best way of doing it which is all about the notion of what fear is yeah um i mean with regards to the supercut idea machete's been saying that you know it's not just putting the two films together but all the scenes that were cut from part one and part two be able to reinstate and he's also talking about potentially getting some financing to film some elements that he wanted to to include and didn't get chance to. And I'd like that supercut to not just be have part one and then part two playing, but 
literally just take all the scenes and recut them into the parts of the adult story yeah. that they would reflect to so that we get it more like the book. Because I don't, I, like you say, you've touched on that it's got the feel of the book. It gets the ideas of the book. There's changes. I mean, The Great Turtle. Yeah, which would never really have worked. If you read the book, The Great Turtle is an element that really takes it into the, into the realm of the fantastical. And thankfully, it was hinted at actually in the first film. But but was was dropped because it just wouldn't work. It would completely take you out. The idea of what it looks like and being a giant spider yeah. and what they've done with that and managed to work with that and do something um, uh, kind of unique with it, I thought was 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 very very good. But uh, yeah, it's 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 good. I I did enjoy. It. I've come out of it and had a good ride, a long ride at that. But it's a little bit. And I heard Mark Camote say these, and those words spring straight to mind which it's, it's a little bit like being on a roller coaster and you there was one ride slightly too many. It was like, you know, you go up, you go down, you go up, and then it does that loop-de-loop at the end, which is like, I don't really need that. I've, I've had a good time. I think it slightly overstays its welcome, but I would like to see a, an ultimate cut if, if it ever becomes available. You mentioned you'd like to touch on that opening scene. Yeah, so there's been a lot of controversy, and it clearly by people who've not read the book. There's a very, very brutal murder at, at the beginning of the film, which is uh, very, very much the same brutal murder that opens opens uh, it uh, and it's nasty and it's it's basically two gay characters are set up on by it by a gang and a lot of people have criticized it for being homophobic the, the film doesn't purport to be homophobic the characters who do this dreadful deed are homophobic and that's there shouldn't be an apology for what that is and people are, are up in arms because uh, a, a gay character is killed at the beginning of the film it's the it's the thing it's that underlining it's like blue velvet it's that moment in small towns where something disgusting and lives under the surface of it like a like an awful brutal murder that that brings it back to life i mean in the first film when we saw the kids' journey, we got glimpses of how horrific the actual normal townsfolk were at Derry because they've all been corrupted by yeah. the presence of it. I mean, basically, loads of kids go missing every 27 years and everyone just kind of brushes gets it off and it. gets on with it. It's like they treat it as normal. Bev's father, absolute piece of work. Yeah. Everyone's parents don't care. Which, this, which, which brings those kids this together. This second film doesn't have much of that, but this opening scene is a way to just like make, make you realise... It is as much a part of Derry as Derry is a part of it. The people within Derry are so corrupted by the presence of that, which has been there since millions of years, that they are corrupted. There's even... A- and I feel that, you know, the scene is shocking. It's brutal. But it's the, it's the catalyst that starts Pennywise off again. Yes. And it is the, it's the sort of horror that we, we're in a world that we're living with now. So it's while it's an on-screen horror, it's the sort of horror that happens to for an awful lot of people from the gay community, from the LBGQT community that it is now. Uh, I have to live with that sort of threat. I mean, so the, I don't think the film should, has to make an apology. I don't think films really should ever make an apology. They are what they are. But the fact that this evil does exist in small towns in, in the, in, and in cities that we, that we live and propagate in now, so I, I think I, I stand by it as a scene. It was used yeah. in the book. It's the that evil, that horrible everyday evilness that feeds it and brings it back. When and, King and wrote it, when, it, 80s, when, he, when it, yeah, in the eighties, he put that that whole chapter in with that killing because he found that kind of thing sickening and horrific, and he wanted to show people like this: you should be horrified by this. This is real horror. You should feel that this is disgraceful and distasteful. And then you should go away and think about it and go, maybe I need to be more open-minded about other people. And as much as we like to think that we're all woke in this day and age, that still goes on. Absolutely. So that scene is still very, very crucial to the times that we live in. And I think they were absolutely right to keep it in. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely right. Any apology, I don't think it needed to be addressed again further in the film. There's hints of one of the characters' uh, uh, sexuality, which was which was uh, a nice touch and surprising as well and, and wasn't dwelled upon, but hinted at and, and we were allowed to make our own conclusion. Uh, I thought that would have been made, they would have made something bigger out of that and I, I actually worked nicer that they didn't uh, and that, that we were left to guess because it's some, that character's secret. But I, I, I totally agree with you. I, it, it, that is real horror. That is the horror of a lot of people living with in, in this world, in communities. And I, I think plaudits for them to have that scene in. It, it, it does make you feel queasy and you feel sad for characters whose screen time is as 10 minutes. And then you feel very, very sad for them. And that's the effect that that, that has on it. 
and the horror that follows it is never as horrific as, as what can happen in real life. I think that's one thing that King has always been really good at doing. He's great at supernatural. He's great at dark, dark and twisted, like other events impacting. But it's when he gets down to the nitty gritty of the human nature, that's when he really chills you because he really taps into what makes man such a bad thing. So it sounds like we pretty much agree on, on it. Yeah, it, it's it's a flawed film. It would have worked better if it was one whole film and all edited and structured the same way. The way that they've done this one to be more like the book makes you look at the first one and go, what, hey, why did why they do that now? But it's not a bad film and it's a good companion piece and yeah. it does wrap it up a lot better than that miniseries did. The, yeah. the finale is a spectacle, an emotional blast to watch. It proper packs many punches. There's dark humour in there, but there's also a lot of real like drama and emotion. Absolutely recommended. If you love the first one, you'll at least enjoy this. If you didn't like the first one, I don't think it's going to change anyone's opinions. No. Watching it all as a whole is not going to make you enjoy it anymore. And it would be worth, if you are thinking of going to see it, uh, and you must, you should really, if you, you consider yourself a fan of Filmfile and a fan of, of Stephen King, you should really go and see it. it. It's definitely worth the ride. But try and get to see part one again before you go, because it, it literally picks up at the end of, of that that last movie. So uh, it's a nice companion piece. It's a very well done. Lots of practical effects in it, which were great to see yes. as well as, as, as CGI in it. But it's also brought about uh, just before we, we sort of move on, it's brought about this resurgence in Stephen King and um, the new Doctor Sleep trailer. Oh, now there's a film I can't wait for. Yeah. Now I've heard rumors that it's the studio are a little bit worried about it, whether that's they're worried about it in a kind of like, as we said, right at the beginning of the program, the way Tank Girl is, that it might be too horrific. I think it's got the potential to be a better film than the book. I found the book disappointing. In considering that it's a, a, a sequel to The Shining, which is probably King's classic. Yeah. Uh, and as a, as a sequel to that particular book, it felt felt very small. And it's clearly it's a very, very different story, but it didn't feel as though it, it, it was a necessary sequel. So I'm hoping... And, and, there's, and from looking at the trailer uh, and looking at the previous trailer, that there is a definitely a, a, a symbiotic relationship between Kubrick's uh, The Shining and this film. And for those who don't, it's, it's the, uh, the the child in The Shining has grown up and he's now Ewan McGregor. Yeah. I mean, if you were going to grow up as a child, yeah, why not be Ewan yeah, McGregor? Yeah, be Ewan McGregor. Uh, but yeah, I mean, th- they've deliberately made this film, from what I've read, to be seen as a sequel to The Shining, the book but also to be a sequel to the film, which had a very different tone and very different elements. So regardless of which version of The Shining you enjoy the most, you should be able to get something out of Doctor Sleep. Personally, I I, I enjoyed Doctor Sleep, the book. Right. I found it his easiest, fi- easiest film, easiest book to fall into. And usually I find like two or three chapters I need to read of a new Stephen King book before I start to get a feel for it. But with this, it was on halfway through chapter one, I was like, yeah, I did I steam mean, through it. I get what you mean, that it was a very slight kind of book. There's not a lot going on. It's a very like contained story, whereas The Shining was quite quite a large-scale like story. I'm really excited for the film. Everything that I've seen about it has just sparked my interest. And I, I just I, I like Ewan McGregor as an actor, and I think he's a good bit of casting for like a grown-up version. It's good to see Stephen King making a, a comeback to the cinema, um, even after the disappointing Pet Cemetery. Yeah, we'll um, brush that one under the carpet. So this has been The Film File. uh, And as we end every programme that we have so far, it's becoming a thing. We want to talk about one thing that we've either seen, read, done, uh, downloaded. Uh, Andy, have you got a a neat thing for this week? For me, this time, it's all about gaming. This, I mean, we've got Borderlands 3 coming out in a couple of days. So I've been re-immersing myself into the Borderlands games, which I've bought multiple times. I've got them on PC, PlayStation 3, PlayStation 4. I will never tire of them and replaying them for like the 15th time. And I'm still enjoying that gameplay mechanism. But even more than Borderlands 3, anyone who saw, who tried No Man's Sky when it first released and it was a, wasn't a patch on the game that they promised, I recommend going back to it now because it's had free updates for the past couple of years. And it's now the multiplayer online experience that they said that they intended from the start. It's a beautiful game. It's an exploration and survival kind of game. But now you can actually bump into other people. You can also name any planets that you find if no one else has already named it, which is great because I'm naming them after rock albums. And so if, if you ever play in No Man's Sky and you come across like, you know, Iron Maiden tracks, 
they're deliberate. I've done all of like Iron Maiden, Killers and Power Slave so far. But it's a beautiful game, very immersive. And the new VR free patch update that they added in, it does make it feel like a completely new immersive experience. Wow. You've almost sold it to me. Uh, mine is uh, mine is a free plug. If you get to hear this before the uh, 14th of September, which it should be out by then, uh, my band Billion Dollar Alice is playing in Rotherham uh, in the UK. Uh, it's an Alice Cooper tribute band and we are playing at the Trades. Um, so please come along. And if you've come because you've heard us on the film file, come along and say hi. It'd be really, really nice to meet you and meet people who are listening to the pod. Uh, the other thing, quickly, we're talking about Stephen King. I had uh, a plethora of books I got through while I was on uh, my recent holidays. Uh, and I got lent a copy of, and it's not quite a novel, it's more, it's more of a novella, uh, a Stephen King story called Elevation. I don't know if you read it. I've not read that, no. It's very short, it's very sweet. It, it probably runs no more than some of his short stories. And, and when I say uh, like the Shawshank was, was basically one of the short, short stories, but it's, it's been published in a, in a standalone book. It's a really, really interesting take on a, on a very different idea. Not a million miles away, that idea from Thinner, if you've ever read Thinner, which is one of the Batman books. But really, really, you forget that Stephen King, not only is a, is a, is a great storyteller, but he's a great wordsmith as well. He's, he's handling of a page. His handling of dialogue and his handling of prose are just marvellous. And I'd kind of forgotten that about King. I went through a period and I read everything that came out and then went through the sort of his cocaine period where it all went downhill and things like Tommyknockers where the, the stories meandered and rambled and he needed an editor. And sometimes I still think he, his books are under the dome, are, are just ridiculously too long. Uh, I've just picked up Sleeping Beauties to read and, and, and I'm daunted by the size of it. But this is really short. Uh, I read it in in probably two sittings. Uh, it's just a really good tale, and that's what Stephen King does uh, at his best. He's, he's 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 a great storyteller, and he and his prose are fantastic. Uh, forget uh, these people who say he's pulpy and he knocks his books out in in no time. Sit and read it, and and read how well written it is. Going back to it was the, the one thing that amazed me. His 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 style of prose, the way he structures sentences, the way he structures dialogue are absolutely phenomenal. And that's it for the film file. If you've not subscribed, please do. It helps our numbers. It makes us feel good about ourselves. And that money can't buy. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Yep. And there should be bonus episodes going out in between the main episodes. Uh, we're intended to keep that different kind of discussion as a separate chain. See this as the main course, but see the bonus episodes as that side order that you didn't think you were going to like, you, didn't, you thoroughly enjoyed. You didn't once think you, got you had it. room for dessert, but you found out that you've got that little bit extra. So this is Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meekin. We'll see you soon.